Good evening, everybody. Um, the finance minister obviously expected he knows academics and thought I will first give a long lecture myself, but I won't do that. Um, I think it's not uh, an overstatement to say Sigbjorn Jonsson is probably the envy and the hope of European finance ministers. He's, of course, the envy because he sits on a national so a sovereign wealth fund that I just learned has generated uh, 11 billion dollars in the first three months of 2011 and it was a disappointment because the European uh, bonds had slumped. He's the hope, well because he sits on the sovereign wealth fund and uh, um, needs to reinvest regularly and European bonds um, have the unfortunate tendency of uh, to slump from time to time. Um, he, he, has, uh, he, was a, he started his political career as the deputy chairman of the Workers' Youth League in 1975. I found that a very nice detail and I'd like to in share that with you. Um, he's a Norwegian politician for the Labour Party was already finance minister once from 1990 to 1996, a period where there was quite a bit going on in, in Europe, single market program, monetary union, first steps and so on, in the Brundtland uh, cabinet. And then he became a regional governor, if one can say that, county governor of Hedmark, and came back in 2009 for the Stoltenberg second cabinet. Um, we are very pleased to have you here uh, to hear about equality, um, growth and sustainability, an impossible combination. Please join me in welcoming the Finance Minister Jonsson for this lecture. Should I get into the corner now? As you prefer. Okay. Well, there was a lot of stuff here. Could I? Uh, I need to organize a little bit. <laughs> oh, that's that, that's good. Yes. That's very good. And we can take this away. Yes, and this one maybe also. Oops. Sorry. Yes, if you prefer. Yeah, could I? <coughs> Thank you very much, and uh, thank you for uh, inviting me to. Uh, this splendid school. It's a school, isn't it? The London School of Economics. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, uh, you know, in Norway, we, we uh, very much uh, appreciate uh, senior people to stay longer in work. <laughs> so myself being 60, <laughs> it's important. Uh, and, and you know, uh, uh, Good evening, everyone. Uh, uh, you know, my generation uh, grew up with the, uh, with the Cold War. We uh, grew up with a lot of uh, famous artists. And uh, some of us are uh, known as this generation of 68. <coughs> well, I was 18 years in 1968, but uh, I still remember uh, Earlier in the 60s, uh, Bob Dylan singing, the times they are changing. And uh, old Bob, he is going to be 70 very soon. <coughs> uh, uh, well, I pro you, well, he was born long before you, most of you here were born, but uh, 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 probably all of you. Is there any, anyone approaching 70 here? No. Just a uh, two or three people, yes. 
but on but you know he's been on a uh, uh, never-ending tour uh, at this uh, older day so 45 years ago he told us the times they are changing and uh, I think that is very true because uh, if you look at the challenges uh, of our times the demographic revolution the climate change the global interdependence the uh, internet revolution the times they are really changing and, uh, and if we go back a uh, couple of years uh, two or three years to the uh, financial crisis of 2008 we, we saw uh, a crisis that triggered one of the most or the most serious economic recession since uh, World War II. At present we see new developments in the Middle East, in North Africa, people roaming the streets, fighting for their democratic rights. Uh, that is also a change. We see droughts and, uh, import, uh, droughts and other, other issues in uh, important food producing countries. This is something here, I must turn back. Uh, we have uh, experienced an earthquake in Japan with a strong emphasis on the Japanese economy. Uh, and these developments are rather different in nature and they also uh, remind us about one very important issue and that is that we live in a more and more interdependent global society. When I grew up, well, it, it's not that long ago. <laughs> I'm not that old. Bob Dylan also wrote a song called My Back Pages, and one of the uh, uh, major lines there are, I was so much older than I'm younger than that today. <laughs> That's also an important statement. But when I grew up, I listened to Radio Luxembourg, Radio Caroline, uh, and I travel through the radio. Today, my son and his pal, they travel through the internet and the iPads and all these uh, new features that uh, I do not cope properly with. Uh, and the London Schools of Economics, I can see uh, looking out at, uh, at the uh, audience here tonight that uh, you reflect this uh, growing interdependence of the world because a lot of nationalities take their uh, uh, education and uh, get their skills from this school. Well, myself, uh, unfortunately, I never, uh, I was never able to go to the university. Not because of my, uh, of my uh, grades, but uh, to say it uh, bluntly, I was sucked into politics at a very young age. I met first time in the parliament at the age of uh, 23 in 1974 and uh, ever after I've been in politics in one way or another. Though a regional governor goes from the executive side of politics or the construction side of the politics into the implementation part of politics. But um, I have been given possibilities in life and uh, my education is the University of Life, and uh, that is also a very important university. Well, what I'm doing, going, going to do tonight is to uh, take you into some aspects uh, of uh, uh, 
the no what we call the Norwegian or the Nordic model and seen some of these changes from a uh, and discussed them from a Norwegian perspective. If you look at Norway, uh, of course we also felt the uh, results and the effects of the global recession, but the impact in Norway was very much less severe than in other countries. The financial sector of Norway was very mildly uh, affected. Uh, unemployment stayed low, public finances remained sound, and the recovery now seems to, to gain a solid footing. So, of course, the large petroleum sector, to a degree, has protected Norway, uh, but there is also uh, more of that story, and the petroleum sector is only part of the story. And I believe, if you look at the Nordic countries, also Sweden and Denmark and also Finland has uh, passed through the, 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 the recession or the crisis in a rather good shape. Well, of course, the results are different, but uh, there must be some common features among the Nordic countries and the way the Nordic countries are organized to, and, uh, and some of this must have, it, uh, have uh, made a contribution to this achievement. Well, if we go further back in history, uh, back to the 1930s, uh, President Roosevelt of the United States of America underlined in one of his famous speeches about the banking crisis in, in the US that the major feature was not all the capital, was not uh, all the things that happens around the banks. The main feature was trust. And that's also what we saw during uh, the financial crisis, that the main issue here is trust. And it's always like that when uh, the financial sector is uh, coming at an edge, that trust is the main issue. And Roosevelt also said that uh, the only thing that we have to fear is fear itself, which he said in his inauguration speech in 1932. And I think that's still true today that trust and fear are two very important words when we talk about uh, the financial crisis and financial crisis in more general. Well, then I turn to the uh, Nordic model, or uh, what happens in the Nordic societies. Uh, and, I, and I would like to underline some very interesting features in building trust among citizens. And then I will organize my discussion on the three pillars. I would say something from the first on the uh, financial crisis. And one major lesson from the breakdown of financial markets in the autumn of 2008 was how trust among participants in the markets were eroded. And trust again also re rests on the marketplace being sufficient transparent so that those who participate are confident of the substance of their transactions. So trust, once again, was a major feature in the crisis of 2008. The second pillar I would talk to you about is uh, the importance of what I call sustainable fiscal policies. And finally, I would discuss social equality, an essential part is, is that uh, annoying, this uh, bumping? No, Should I stay further back? Uh, 
You know, I, I'm not, be, well, in my life I've been an agitator, so uh, <laughs> that, that's why I use my voice. <coughs> uh, and, but uh, uh, social equality is an essential part of what we call the Nordic model. Is it better now? Oh, that's good, that's good. And uh, I think that, in my view, equality might strengthen the, the trust between the people and the politicians and enhance growth and a good economic performance. That's one of my theses. I will discuss it in more detail. First of all, the importance of transparency. And uh, an illustration of this, we got during the autumn almost three years ago when the world's financial markets were at the verge of a total breakdown. Well, for a time there has been a lot of warnings against widening imbalances and credit-driven booms in the housing market. But very few predicted the full extent of the harmful consequences arising from the complexity of financial markets. Both financial institutions and investors and even municipalities in Norway, I tell you, there were municipalities in Norway that invested money in this and they got huge losses. And in the aftermath, they have to, to, have to struggle very hard. So one could say on a smaller scale, you could really compare some of the Norwegian municipalities with the challenges that European countries are facing. A lot of their assets were lost, and they, fa and they faced huge difficulties with the, with the uh, deficits in the municipal budgets and fiscal balances. So at, that was at a very sm much smaller uh, scale. But uh, they invested in risky uh, objects that they didn't fully understand or objects that they didn't got the dec uh, declared how, how, how complex and difficult uh, they were to invest in. So what we call the asymmetric information between lenders and borrowers, between market participants and regulators, is a general characteristic of financial markets. So this is a very important part of the story. In the early 1990s, Norway experienced a national banking crisis. And uh, in the aftermath, uh, some described this crisis in uh, three short sentences. Bad politics, bad banking, and bad luck. Well, one could say a lot about uh, expressing it that way, but uh, it made sense in the respect that uh, a combination of these three aspects paved the way for the crisis that we had in Norway in the early 90s. And when the crisis really set in in 2008, it was almost impossible to separate the solid banks from the less solid banks in a globally integrated market and confidence evaporated and the consequence was close to full stop in access to credit for banks, households, and businesses. Then, of course, I could say a lot about uh, extensive speculations and imprudence and the part this also played 
in this respect. Incentives, renumerations, a lot of other issues that was uh, interconnected with the reasons that we saw erupt in, in, the spring, in, in, the, in the fall of 2008. And of course, this is a very important part of the discussion, that speculators and imprudent institutions should face the consequences and be made accountable. Making them accountable will in turn discourage unnecessary high risk taking and reduce the likelihood of future financial crisis. Who pays the bill is an important part of this issue. And as a politician and as a uh, social democrat, I could say that uh, those who pay the highest bill are the 35 million people who lost their jobs as a direct consequence of the financial crisis. Those who really pays uh, the bill are the millions of unemployed people in Europe. And that's also, that's also important to bear that in mind when we are constructing the ways and means to cope with this crisis and, and, and hit the right balance between uh, tightening budgets and uh, the need for people to have a job. This is a very difficult balance, but it's an important balance. So, uh, then I would say something about the Norwegian banking crisis that we experienced 20 years ago. What we did in Norway uh, in the early 90s, we injected from the government side equity capital into the banks while the private share capital was written down on the basis of a realistic assessment of loan losses, which shows another uh, approach uh, than we have seen during this financial crisis in many countries. And this also ensured that capital uh, injection by the government also should benefit from the upside opportunities. And as a result of the banking crisis, the Norwegian government uh, uh, assumed 100% ownership of the three largest banks. And uh, we also made changes in the organization of these banks. Then gradually, the banks were uh, denationalized, and, and the government also made this on a profit basis. But still today, we have a one-third stake in the biggest Norwegian bank. One of the lessons that we learned from this banking crisis was the need to have a very sound financial regulation and supervision. And it should be comprehensive and cover the whole financial sector. Financial regulation should be consistent. The same risk must be regulated in the same way whoever holds it. And there should be only one single supervisor for the whole financial market. This system has served us well. Uh, markets worldwide have become more complex and more integrated in the last 20 years. Therefore, I agree with the urgent need now to improve international standards for financial markets regulation, and I welcome also the important role of the Basel III uh, Committee, the IMF, the EU, and the G20, and the steps they have taken towards this issue. 
Concerted action in a more and more interdependent world is vital and important. Even though national regulations should be implemented on a national level, but a concerted international action is very important because the financial markets in its nature is an international market. <clears throat> so I'm looking forward to, in different forums, to, to the development of further financial cooperation on financial regulations. But of course, deficiencies in the financial markets were not the only weakness revealed during the global recession. This brings me to the second pillar of, my, uh, of the concept of trust, the importance of sustainable fiscal policies. The role of government's intervention, intervention became more pressing and, and the strength of public finances were put, was put on a test. What started as a financial crisis very soon emerged into a fiscal crisis in many countries, growing deficits and growing death. And for some countries, the risk and the premium of the risk have skyrocketed. However, not only may financial markets be nervous, lack of confidence can also spread among taxpayers in these countries. And those are the ones who will, as I mentioned earlier, the ones who will eventually carry the burden. Forty years ago, no, it's 42 years ago, Norway discovered oil. Well, it was not Norway, it was a, the Philips Petroleum Company, really, who discovered oil, but they have a license to, dr to drill on the Norwegian continental shelf. We discovered oil, it was uh, Little Christmas Eve in 1969. <laughs> nice Christmas present. <laughs> not Christmas Eve, but it was a Christmas present. We got it one day in advance. Uh, <laughs> Of course, uh, uh, this has given us a uh, privileged position. I, uh, uh, it's, it's no problem admitting that. And today, the petroleum sector makes up uh, uh, to more than 20% uh, of the Norwegian GDP and almost 50% of our export revenues. And this sector has not only given us a huge uh, bank deposit, it has also given us uh, one of the most advanced industries of the world because uh, the history of oil is not only the history of money, it's also the history of in innovation, the history of people, the history of technological development. And uh, the industrial sector is not only the account that would stand for the future, but also the competence and the skills of this huge industrial sector of Norway. So. Um, it has uh, given us a rise to a thriving supply sector and spurred technological innovation in a number of high industrial and highly advanced niche industries. And uh, when, some, someday, someday the oil is gone, at least the oil which is in the, in the reservoirs, but then this industry would, would step forward. And uh, maybe being used for other purposes than being supplies to the oil industry. It could be 
be part of the development of a new renewable industrial sector, for instance. So it's a lot of possibilities. <laughs> well, many countries have experienced uh, overnight to become rich. Uh, and uh, there are some expressions uh, like the uh, paradox of plenty, the resource course or Dutch disease, as it's also been mentioned. And uh, there is no clear way that uh, when you struck uh, richness that you, are being, that you are able to be rich over a long period of time. <coughs> I used to be a, a chairman of the board of the Norwegian Lottery. Uh, and uh, uh, every Saturday there is, uh, you get these lotto figures on the television and they always call up the new millionaires. And uh, stri striking oil is like winning in the lotto, in the lottery. Uh, but uh, that, that's well, that's difficult to win in the lottery. I, I tell you, I've been trying for many years, <laughs> but I only win a few crowns. Uh, uh, but uh, I think it's more difficult to uh, manage when you win the first prize in the lottery. It's what happens afterwards that's important. And so it's the same with oil. So uh, when, we, when we discovered the oil and when we were putting ahead forward the, the first report to the parliament, we said a, a few very important things. And uh, one of the main challenges was to transform, transform a highly temporary revenue stream into an, an unity. It took some time uh, and some hard learning, of course, before we managed to settle the present combination of a sovereign wealth fund and a prudent fiscal policy rule. But already from the start, we, we put forward a white paper to the parliament where we stated the oil revenues are the property of the Norwegian people. And the parliament should manage this wealth to the best, not only at, for present generation, but also for the generations to come. And that's why we said that uh, uh, this money should be used to, uh, to level out the, uh, uh, the fluctuations of the Norwegian economy. A large part of it should be uh, invested abroad, etc., etc. And so this, uh, I would call the, 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 the golden rule of the Norwegian oil policy, this money is the property of the people is a very important political guideline because this, uh, this tells us that uh, my responsibility as a Minister of Finance today, I'm the owner or the Ministry is the owner of this huge account. The, the National Bank is the manager of the day-to-day -day, uh, dis uh, dispositions of this, of this fund. But uh, I must have a look at not only what we are going to spend this money, what kind of purpose we are going to spend the money for today, but I have to look at the generational perspective. Because the next generation should also have the same possibility as my generation to finance their own and our common welfare. And uh, that's one of the main reasons why we save in this uh, account and at the same time we have a fiscal rule allowing us to spend money on an annual basis through the, uh, the fiscal budget. But oil is oil. 
fish is fish, nature is nature, forest is forest, uh, hydroelectric power is hydroelectric power. The main thing is uh, the human capital, which you are part of, and uh, which you are going to uh, enable yourself to be a very important, important part of this human capital for the future, because it's human innovation, it's human work that is important to uh, utilize these natural resources and put them into to work, so to say, to, to, uh, uh, in, in different positions in order to fulfill long-term perspectives and long-term aims of the policy. So it's always down to people. And that's, well, this is not in my script, but uh, <coughs> anyway, I'm going to say it. <laughs> Uh, uh, that's if, 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 if you look at it from a Norwegian perspective, oil, the, the, uh, the balance in the petroleum fund, or well, no, that was the old name, in the state pension fund global, I, I got this new name. Uh, and uh, what is left still in the reservoirs which we have discovered stands for approximately 8% of the national wealth of Norway. More than 80% is the value of human labor. So I always tell the people in, our, in the National Bank investment management, uh, you should be very clever in your management of this money to cope with a policy that on an annual basis would raise the value of the human capital with one, by 1%. So it's the human capital that counts. And that's why it's so important always to remember that natural resources are really dead, uh, to use in brackets, if we do not uh, uh, use human innovation and human capital in order to transform natural resources into other resources. So it's, it's important always to remember that. And looking at many of the European countries today, which are at the time in deep trouble, and uh, I, I, I will underline again the importance of giving the workforce possibilities for the future, giving young people hopes and dreams for the future, giving them jobs, educational opportunities in, in order to develop and to refine the human capital and not allow human capital to erode. So uh, that, that brings me to my third and the uh, final uh, issue. I'm not finished yet, but uh, uh, a few more minutes. So, the third pillar is called social equality. And, and the ratings, to use that word, of a government depends on how it spends common resources, whether raised through taxation, or collected as, a as an economic rent on national resources. It rests on the, its ability to, to, to provide its citizens with adequate and fair welfare distributed services. And this build upon the principles and principles that are considered to be fair. As we all know, fairness is a question of some controversy and uh, the exact content may vary among countries, social groups and individuals, 
Nevertheless, the main story about the Norwegian model is social equality and a fair distribution of tasks between the different groups of the people in order to fulfill the main goals of the welfare state. And there is a fairly broad consensus in Norway on the benefits of an extensive social security net, equal access to education, health and care. When I joined the labor youth in the mid-60s, uh, well, at that time I wasn't uh, political uh, ripe, so to say. I, I was just a uh, schooler then in politics. Uh, I, I got some uh, knowledge uh, during the road. Uh, but one of the, the first main issues that we raised in my local branch was uh, a lawful right for all young people to, to get education beyond grammar school. That was fulfilled in the late 60s. And that was very important because uh, it tells us uh, a country with a fair distribution and with uh, uh, high emphasis on social equality, in my view, is very important. So, um, and uh, it's very interesting that on the uh, economic forum this winter in, in, in Davos, they discussed the so-called Nordic model. It differs. There is a Swedish model and a Norwegian model and even a Dan Danish model. Uh, but the overall phrasing is, uh, we call it the Nordic model. Uh, and I think that uh, among uh, these features in this model is uh, large public sectors, general, generous welfare schemes, strong unions, and to a large extent also fairly centralized wage bargaining and routine consultations between the government and the social partners. Of course, as I said already, in all societies, the most valuable resource is labor, and we must never forget that. So, but still, full employment is no guarantee for an efficient allocation of resources. As we know, productivity differs between jobs, and high productivity is crucial for growth to be sustainable. But uh, what we have seen is that a comprehensive income insurance scheme in combination with ambitious and active labor market policies has facilitated a reallocation of labor from declining low productivity industries to rising high productivity industri industries. So um, even though Norway for a number of years have experienced uh, higher growth in costs than our main competitors on the European mainland, we have been able to uh, rebalance this, uh, uh, this growing level of cost with an increased level of productivity. And in my view, there is a very close linkage between the welfare system and the high productivity of the economy. Of course, welfare schemes might be costly. I do believe that uh, the gains are even bigger. Clearly, this is uh, conditioned on the scheme and the financing of the scheme being desi designed in a sound way. Work must pay, and the security net and pension schemes must provide sufficient in incentives to work. 
Certainly, this way of organizing the society requires a relatively high taxes, which again increases the importance of designing a tax system that minimizes the efficiency loss in the tax system. So, in my impression, the willingness to pay taxes is high in Norway. Well, of course, we discuss it, but uh, overall, the willingness to pay taxes are high because you get, a, as, as a citizen, in many respects, you get a reasonably high yield from paying taxes. Uh, one example is the petroleum tax, which is, and the tax rate here is uh, rather high by international standards, even though Norway is one of the biggest petroleum exporters in the world, and there is uh, almost no discussion of this tax. This is, by the way, also one of the most sensible taxes due to the environmental distortion stemming from CO2 emissions. Of course, I will stress that the Nordic model is not a result of a ground design. Rather, today's features are an outcome of a long evolu evolutionary process. Consensus-based policies and the cumulative implementation of reforms have produced its current version. We did not have a grand master plan from the beginning, but uh, the main issue in the 30s was a notion that uh, if we should build a society of higher quality and more, equali and more equality, we have to raise the uh, huge ma majority of the people to a decent standard. Uh, but in a way, the model has developed as we walk down the road. Consensus-based politics, politics and, uh, as I said, have resulted in the uh, current version. And, I'll, and I'll, I'll, as I also said, the model is not identical between and among the Nordic countries. So each country has to uh, implement and to develop their own model but I think uh, a principle must be laid in the bottom, the principle of an equal uh, distribution and equality. Well, Norway can be no more than an example. Each society must have its own part of developments. Economic thinking after the global recession would probably gain from looking at a broad range of experiences. And I hope my speech here tonight can be one of many contributions in our search for sustainability in our economic systems. We live in a knowledge society. When I left office as the Minister of Finance in 1996, I haven't heard about the SMS and things like that. The internet was at the, the very beginning. And the first thing I did when we left office was to tell my boss, Mrs. Brundtland, that uh, I have enlisted us in a three-day course in the parliament learning the basics of uh, uh, using a computer <laughs> <coughs> or a PC. Well, it's, it's, it's only 15 years ago. <coughs> it's not a long time. Uh, but uh, we live in a knowledge society. Books, papers, television, and the internet enable us to 
get information about almost anything at high speed. And those of us living today are the most experienced generations ever. And, uh, well, this is a philosophical uh, uh, sentence, but uh, from time to time, when I'm looking at all the conflicts in the world, all wars, not uh, treating people properly, how much or how little have we learned from the experience of history? Uh, so, but I never lose hope that uh, my generation and future generations would use this experience and this knowledge of history to visualize a new path where we can abolish all wars, for instance. We should have learned about that, but uh, it's difficult. Societies are becoming more complex and specialized, making information uh, more and more important for many of us. But also, at the same time, uh, the, the huge amount of information might also create a danger that the information, more generally, might be less ac accessible for many of us. So it's uh, something to remember. Well, the accumulation of uh, learning is endless. Well, the accumulation of knowledge is endless, and learning takes us place within an increasingly more technical and mathematical frame accessible only for experts. We must also remember that. Indeed, in a growing number of areas, we have to trust what experts tell us. Societies are becoming more complex, like the uh, financial crisis, which was also a result of a more complex financial infrastructure and financial world. You are now gaining knowledge within fields in which you will be experts. Wisdom, however, requires more than knowledge gained from studying. It's an important basis, but it's not all. One has to learn from the successes and mistakes of earlier generations, as I mentioned. And you must listen to your hearts. Nelson Mandela, one of the wisest politicians, or probably the, well, in my generation, one of the wisest politicians and men of my generation said, a good head and a good heart are always a formidable combination. It's both. It's important to remember that. Deploy your skills and knowledge wisely, and you will contribute to the creation of trust in your society, because trust is the main word not only for financial markets, but also for the relationship between people. And uh, trust is the main world. Well, I started by quoting Bob Dylan. Well, he's one of my favorite artists. And uh, in one of his songs, he said that uh, the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. You remember that one? And uh, the answers are out there. Maybe blowing in the wind, but the answers are out there. So uh, it's difficult to capture the wind. But if you can capture the answers blowing by, by the wind, you have done something very important. So capture these 
answers and capture this knowledge and use them for the best of yourself, your generations, your children, and for society. And once again, thank you very much for inviting me and thank you very much for listening to me this evening. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, um, Finance Minister. I think you already gave us one answer. I mean, we in London like, of course, the Beatles a bit more, and I would say all you need is love, and a bit of oil helps too. <laughs> so this was one answer I could read out from, hear from your, your talk. Uh, we take now questions. Um, anything you would like to ask? We'll see whether you get an answer to any of your questions, but please be concise and do not give a second lecture. Introduce yourself briefly, your name and, and affiliation would be welcome. The gentleman in the white shirt. Just wait for the uh, roving mic. Hi, uh, thanks a lot for the lecture. Uh, I'm Heide Rida from uh, Bain & Company. Um, I think the point you made about fairness was very interesting, uh, especially when we look at it, as you said, in contrast with the lottery, which by definition is not fair. So you say, okay, the lottery is not fair, but the oil money is the property of the people, the Norwegian people, so we try to distribute it equally as much as possible. The, equ the ethical question which I have there is, is it right to say it's the property of the Norwegian people, only the Norwegian people? Shouldn't we say, okay, if we are going for equality, people in Africa or in Latin America or in Middle East need the same money more? And it's not just because uh, a Norwegian has won the lottery and he's born above that oil, that he has more right to that money than somebody who is born in another part of the world who needs it more. Mm. What can Norway do to bring this equality further um, and, and level the, the unfairness of the lottery out even furthermore? Thanks. Why don't you answer that immediately? Because I don't see. Well, you raise a. <coughs> You, you raise a very important uh, uh, question, and uh, I will try to answer it in, uh, uh, with uh, three points. First of all, uh, we invest this money abroad, which means that uh, you, through that we might also be a contribution to, uh, to uh, the stability and uh, also the uh, long-term development of other countries, even though we uh, in, in invest in small por portions in every country. To, to give you one example, during the financial crisis, uh, the Ministry of Finance in Norway was not an uh, 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 impatient owner uh, requiring to get back his, back his money. It, it, during the financial crisis, we expand our possibility to invest in shares, and we invested during the crisis. Many other investors did the opposite. So in a way, the fund, even though the fund is a institutional investor and not a foreign policy tool, this money should be invested abroad. That's my first point. My, my second point is that uh, if you look at Norway uh, and, the, and the Norwegian policies towards uh, developing countries, for instance, we are on the top of the scale, together with a few other countries like the Netherlands and the Nordic countries. We are, we are one, of, one of those who are above the 1% bracket of national net income in, in, uh, in development aid. Uh, we, are, we are trying to uh, 
we are also uh, in the forefront, in my view, in, in a lot of other issues, for instance, concerning the preservation of the rainforest, etc., etc. So we have a, 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 a beating heart also for development. And, and of course, uh, my third point is that uh, you are right. Uh, Norway, like many other countries, are dependent upon uh, uh, a fair exchange of trade and, and investments uh, among countries. And uh, this solidarity, to call it that, should also be part of the policy. So I think that uh, we own, not, we own the, the Norwegian society and the, and the coming generations in Norway to invest this money wisely. But we should also be active on many other international, uh, in many international forums, in order to promote, uh, to promote, and not only speak about uh, international solidarity. And, and in my view, Norway is also in the forefront in that respect. So it's a wide range of policies I think that should be implemented, not only the management of the fund. Thank you, the gentleman with the glass. Thank you very much, Mr. Jensen, for a most um, interesting talk. Just to sharpen up the debate, I Can want to add almost... Can you briefly introduce yourself? Sorry, beg your pardon. Paul Hudson, no longer a fixed academic abode. Um, <laughs> I, I'm going to pose my questions in the form of a devil's advocate, just to try and sharpen up the debate. Uh, underlying your speech, I was impressed by your mention of trust and consensus. I think that's largely a characteristic of Scandinavian countries. I want to put it to you, this would not apply, in fact, to Britain or America. For example, if people use a mo lose a mobile telephone or something equally valuable, the chances are that it will not be handed in, in fact, to the uh, public uh, lost property office. Whereas in some countries, perhaps like yours, and from my experience in Germany, people actually do hand it in. Um, so that, that's one of the points I uh, wish to make. Uh, also, you were talking about the value of uh, um, labour. Again, that wouldn't make any sense. Well, not, I think, in this country in the last 20 years, and least of all in America. For example, real wages of people in the lower 50%, the real level of wages has hardly moved in the last 30 years. It's gone up most by, um, in areas of people who hold um, board directorships, most notably in the financial sector. What have they contributed? You've already given you an answer. What they've contributed is a loss of 35 million jobs. And a lot of those people are actually in the banking sector themselves at the lower uh, levels. I, I just feel that it's a, Scandinavia would be, a, the Scandinavian countries would be a country where I would recommend my three-year-old granddaughter to go and work rather than stay in this country or even go to America. And we see this lack of um, consensus and uh, social, solida uh, social soli solidarity in the recent debates over the uh, Medicare bills uh, in America. The lobbies for the medical health companies have been done very, very well. Nobody in America seems to notice that the admin costs of their public health system up to recently was 4% of the total cost. In America, it's 16%. I just feel that what you're advocating, I support but I don't see it being applied, in fact, to large chunks of the rest of the Western world. Thank you. There's another question just in front of you. Yes. Hello, uh, my name is uh, Gerard. I'm a student here at the LSE. Um, my question concerns the investment in uh, human capital, as you said. Like, um, what interests me is the development here in the UK, but also in other countries. For example, I'm from the Netherlands. 
uh, a move away from, at least for higher education, away from public uh, public education. And um, what your stance is on that, like, because I do believe in the same same ideology, maybe I'm from a Labour Party as well, and that's like, it's a political view uh, of investing in people, of equal opportunity, of growth through a good welfare state. But we see the opposite in continental Europe as well, and here in, in, in the welfare state is under threat, and we're talking about permanent austerity rather than investing. And isn't it like the, the Scandinavia is a little bit apart, but even in Sweden and Finland, there I think there's moves as well. And isn't Norway the 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 the, the one that's because of the oil the exception to the rule, instead of yeah this ideal of public public services, but especially public education? Like I I, I see another development. I probably answered this. Okay, if you want. Well, uh, in order not to forget what you were asking me, I, I, w I would uh, try to, uh, to say a few words about the two questions. Uh, Paul was talking about trust and consensus, because um, one of the experiences from Norway is that uh, in uh, some, of course there are political discussions in Norway, huge, poli uh, uh, vibrant political discussions on many topics. Uh, but uh, looking at the uh, the oil uh, oil politics from the from the outset, there has been a very broad consensus of the main lines of the of the policy concerning the development of the oil sector. Another one is the consensus to a large degree on foreign policies. We implemented a major pension reform from January one this year, with a very broad consensus in the parliament. Only one party voting against it. So, and and the reason why this is. Uh, so to say, crossing party borders and party line is that uh, our experience is that uh, when we when we make a common, uh, when we try to lift a common burden, uh, it's very important that we all are lifting. So 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 that is very important. And I, I must say that uh, I really back. Uh, I, I'm not going to comment on uh, more domestic policies in uh, which are. Uh, as a minister of finance, but uh, I would like to comment uh, slightly upon. Uh, Mr. Obama's, uh, President Obama's uh, strive to get a more fair social security system in the U.S. Be because uh, it's so important, 40 million people without an uh, appropriate social security. And the only one who can lift that social security in the U.S. is the, is the federal government. So uh, I, 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 I must really say here that I, I'm, I'm backing this strive, but it's, it's very difficult. And as you uh, mentioned, uh, uh, if you look at uh, the spendings on, on healthcare as a proportion of GDP, the U.S. spends more than Norway as a proportion of GDP, but uh, the distribution of health services are much more fair in Norway than in the U.S. So this is very important, and I think that uh, for the common American worker, this is one of the most important issues. But it's, it's very difficult, and we have seen that from the political discussion that it's not so easy to implement. And, and your, my third point is that, uh, as, and as I said in my speech, it's very important that those responsible for the crisis also are made accountable. Because if it goes back to the Norwegian banking crisis in the early 90s, what we did, of course, uh, uh, in, in order to manage the crisis, the government put up a, a couple of new defense lines uh, for the financial system. And, and the last defense line was uh, a, a, a governmental uh, 
investment banking fund, which, uh, was, a, which was ready to go into the banks with ec new equity and fresh equity. But the precondition for that was that this equity should be given priority to the ordinary private equity in the bank. So they have to take, the, the, the bank's own defense lines have to take the first losses. And, and I think that was a very sane approach to, to the banking crisis. And uh, I think also that was part of the solution because people in Norway felt that the, the, resp the, the responsibility was fairly uh, put forward to the different uh, actors uh, in, in, in that respect. Well, uh, Gerard, I would, I would uh, just make two points. Uh, first of all, I would give you uh, what I would call the German example. Because when the financial crisis hit uh, major German industries, what did they do? They didn't fire people. They put up some very comprehensive schemes in order to, uh, to give their workers new skill and competence. Because uh, uh, what comes down must, it's, it's with, from Chicago, it's, it's blood, sweat, and tears, it's the other way around. But what goes down must come up. <laughs> uh, and and, and then. And, and that's what the German industries were, were relying on, that, well, we are now in the, in the midst of a crisis with, uh, 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 market, uh, with market uh, access for German industries deteriorating during the crisis. But in a few years or in a period of time, the margins would start to surge. And at that point, we must be ready. So they, they used this period of time to prepare themselves. And, and when the, the growth was picking up, the German industry was ready. And what you are experiencing now is a very uh, substantial growth in uh, your, your German production and in German industries. So one important lesson is that uh, it's always uh, a, a sane and fair thing to do to give your workforce new competence and new skills. The other point I'm going to make is that uh, uh, in September last year, we we were, we were we were we were hosting a major conference in Norway as a joint project between the ILO, the International Labour Organization, and the IMF on job creation, uh, which really constitutes an, constitutes a new way of uh, cooperation between uh, two two very important international bodies, and uh, the focus was on jobs, possibilities for young people possibilities for the unemployed approaching from the from the notion that uh, as I also mentioned in my speech that human capital is the most valuable asset for every country well it's uh, I, I know it's difficult to talk about this when it's a lot of young people and older people being unemployed in Europe but really for Spain for Greece for Ireland for Portugal and many other countries their labor force is really their possibility to, to, to get back and to start on a, uh, 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 on a uh, so to say, uh, rising curb of economic growth. And, and they have got to do it because uh, in a few years' time they are facing the demographic revolution with a the, with the very significant change of composition of the population. A lot more elderly people is going to be uh, uh, the reality of our societies, and they have to meet the needs for pensions and the need for healthcare, and that's why it's so important that they have to go through this first period now 
and uh, I, I'm certain that they are going to succeed, but it's going to be hard. But they must never forget that the valuable asset of all these countries, as well as Norway, is their human capital. So, as you know, uh, my political experience tells me that the unemployment is an erosion of not only the skill of each individual worker, but also an erosion of skill of that uh, special or respective country. The lady in the front. Thank you. My name is Anna Brundtland. I'm a student here at the LSE from Norway. Um, if the ethical guideline at the investment fund clashes with the expected return, how do you determine what takes precedence? And will Greece leave the euro? <laughs> the gentleman behind the My name is Andre Sambrano. I'm a business consultant. And I would like to know uh, from your public fund that you are mainly gaining your, your income due to, to the oil uh, exports, how much, what is the portion of that uh, fund that you are investing or at least lending into renewables? <coughs> then I saw another hand just behind. Yeah, please. And then. Hello, my name is Jason Bickerson. I'm an, an energy economist. Um, in my view, the crisis of 2008 was not a financial one, it was a political one, and it was the outcome of a colossal conflict of interest, which was governments and politicians doing business, private business. My question to you is, how does, does Norway have a kind of a practical mechanism that ring fences your political leadership from doing private business? Just to put it bluntly, is there a mechanism that actually deters a, an oil executive work, entering the cabinet and vice versa? Thank you. Well, uh, just to start with the latter question, uh, uh, when I joined uh, the cabinet, uh, I had to get rid of all my private interests. I had a few shares in a company which I was uh, uh, chairman of the board prior to my uh, appointment as Minister of Finance. I had to sell this, those shares because uh, as a Minister of Finance, you are not allowed to mix uh, private interest and public interest. So it's, it's a very clear rule in Norway on, 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 <coughs> on that. Then you said something about uh, uh, that this crisis also had a political reason. And uh, well, uh, when we look at the Norwegian banking crisis uh, in the early 90s, it's clear to see that uh, we made some political decisions that was part of the uh, uh, reason for this, uh, uh, this crisis, and uh, that's a long story. Uh, but I think uh, it's, it's very important to, uh, to realize that uh, uh, th there, there was a kind of a notion worldwide that uh, the financial sector should, in a way, develop in its own manner. So it's always important to have political prudence uh, in, respectively on all different sectors, especially on a sector which is so important and vital for, uh, for the uh, health of uh, each country's uh, uh, economic development. Uh, so what we did in Norway in the aftermatch was that we renovated the, uh, and we strengthened the, the, the uh, supervision side, we strengthened the capital requirements, and we also demanded more transparency. And transparency is important in order to, uh, to cope with the uh, possible coming crisis because uh, eventually uh, 
uh, a new crisis will come, but uh, you, it's, it's hard to tell the, the, the real context of, of this. Uh, when it comes to renewables, uh, there is a mandate in the, in the State Pension Fund Global on, uh, on environmental investments, but uh, uh, renewables in Norway is mostly dealt with through the ordinary uh, uh, resources of the fiscal budget. So, uh, but there is a, an environmental mandate uh, uh, given to the, to the fund, and uh, of course that would also include uh, uh, looking forward on, uh, uh, on viable uh, environmental investments. Uh, so you asked about uh, uh, Greek, Greece. Well, uh, uh, Greece is in a very challenging position, but in my view, uh, there is there is no there is no other alternative than to go through the crisis because uh, Greece is important for Europe and Europe is important for Greece and uh, uh, and uh, uh, even for Norway, uh, Greece is important and Europe is important because if Europe fails, Norway would ha run into deep trouble as well because uh, even though today we are in a very uh, good financial position with huge uh, surpluses, uh, huge assets, if uh, Europe is not succeeding in what they are going through now, that would also make it more difficult for Norwegian companies to compete in the European market. So Norway is also dependent upon that Greece and other European countries are succeeding. And I would say that the, the way that, uh, that the EU countries or the Euro countries approached this crisis is an important proof on the, the fact that Europe is important for all European countries and Germany has really gone in the forefront on, in this. And, I, I, in my view, there is uh, all the all the alternatives are uh, are are much bad, much more bad than uh, getting through the crisis. And I'm I'm certain that uh, the Greece and the Greek people would will endure, but it's going to be a very tough uh, period ahead. So it's it's really in 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 Greece and in Portugal and and in Ireland and other countries to find the right balance between, as I said, tightening the fiscal policies and uh, improving the possibilities for unemployed and being have a keen eye on the development in the labor market. It's, it's a delicate balance, but it's possible to cope with both. Can I, since I don't, I see one other, if I may briefly abuse my uh, privilege as the, the chair. On this Greek question, uh, but actually I would also like to say you know, Greece seems to be now the case that we always expected, but there are other countries that are also in the docks and where it's not so clear what, what happened. What is your, your position on how one could help Greece to go through the crisis? There must be two hearts in beating in your breast, as the Germans say. Um, we are discussing whether there could be a haircut. You have talked about investors need to be held accountable. They invested on, at their own risk, so if things go bad, why should the taxpayers the, the, who have never earned the interest rate on these bonds pay for all that? Would you as a finance minister, but also as an owner of, or being the head of an investment fund into these bonds, say, yeah, the haircut is probably what we need? How do you look at the solution of from 2013 onwards we will have collective action clauses in all European bond issues, meaning you can really rope in the investors in any such crisis resolution. And the second question I have, because you mentioned very much the 
um, trust of citizens into government. If one stresses that very much that it's trust of citizens, how much can that extend? Is that one of the limitations of Europe as a political project that in a way a very trust-based polity can never be as large as this subcontinent? Mm. And I take one more question, is that okay? Okay. The gentleman in the white shirt again. Hi, good evening. My name is Alberto Barba. I'm a student, Spanish student on sustainable development. So, I mean, you sound, uh, your position sounds very much like a preacher, which is all virtues, which we know Norway is. So I come from Spain, obviously, and I've got two questions for you. Is first of all, we are the worst hit uh, unemployment market in the uh, in EU, second in the world. So basically, what do you need uh, think needs to happen to change the mindset of politicians or government bodies in order to invest in natural capital? Because right now, natural capital, uh, sorry, human capital is being left on its own in Spain, especially over 40 percent uh, youth unemployment. The second question I have for you is actually, uh, we have heard uh, over and over again about the too big to fail. Well, f it looks like in your case you have got a more approach of too important to fail. And the too important to fail is actually your welfare system. And basically I'm thinking whether, how do you think you can spread that message across? Because you know, the cuts are being hit on the wealth, are hitting the welfare system rather than the private sector. So how do you feel your approach to is the welfare system that is the most important item that we need to secure rather than the business. How do you think that message is compatible with economic growth or is exportable to other countries? Thank you. Okay. Mm. <coughs> well, 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 first of all, uh, I've been commenting Greece uh, earlier, but uh, once again, Götle uh, Smith said say that uh, uh, from a Nor Norwegian perspective, we we the uh, the measures put up for uh, for Portugal, Ireland, and uh, and Greece are a combination of uh, EU or Euro funds and uh, and and uh, and programs from the IMF. Norway is participating in the IMF program to Greece, and uh, uh, that's uh, that's our contribution uh, to to the more direct. Uh, uh, rescue. rescue, if you might call it that, uh, for uh, for the Greece, uh, Greek economy. But in 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 the case of Iceland uh, and Latvia, we also in addition, we came up with a, uh, a Nordic joint operation uh, among the Nordic countries as a bilateral, uh, like like the British, like England did to to Ireland. Mm. So there are different approaches. But uh, in the case of Greece, we participate in the ordinary. IMF uh, uh, facility. Then, of course, uh, I would like to, as, as, I, as I left uh, the House of Lords, where, where I had a meeting earlier this afternoon with a group of uh, MPs and Lords, uh, especially interested in Norway. Uh, it was a very interesting meeting. Very close to the Parliament, there is a statue of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and, he, and he said these famous words in his Gettysburg Address in late November 19, 1863, a government for the for by the people of the people and for the people, and I think that is very important for always for politicians to remember that we are 
not there for our own sake. We are being elected to office or appointed to office. Um, we, are, we are bound to act on behalf of the people. So I think uh, it's always important to bear that in mind that uh, we are a cabinet uh, uh, by the people, of the people, and for the people, as Abraham Lincoln uh, uh, described it. If we go back to Norway in 1991, when we experienced uh, not only a banking crisis, but we also experienced a uh, downturn in the economy, and by Norwegian standards, we had uh, very huge unemployment figures, uh, surpassing 6%. Today, the unemployment figure in Norway is 3.2. But uh, by Norwegian standards, that was a very high unemployment back in 1991. And what we did was that we we're looking at the fiscal budget, and we saw clearly that we had to transform money uh, from uh, uh, transfers to, and, and to put it into education, into more uh, places for students and young people to get to the university and to the high schools, to, uh, to uh, look at it uh, also to transfer money to investments in infrastructure and also in uh, a direct uh, investments in uh, 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 in uh, in uh, labor market uh, policies, that that was part of the deal from the uh, from the government, and then there was uh, two other parties in that deal, and that was the social partners, the 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 trade union uh, tr trade unions of Norway, and the employer uh, employers unions of Norway, and uh, their job was to uh, manage the wage negotiations in a way that when you have to withhold your, your desire to have a, a wage rises to, to a certain degree in, in order to save money in the businesses to be put into new investments. So this was a kind of a joint, uh, joint approach between the government and the social partners. I'm, I'm telling you because this was the uh, Norwegian experience, but other countries might uh, find other solutions. But I think that uh, to, uh, to, to do this collectively, it's very important, and try also in, in that respect to find a fair, uh, fair share of burdens between those who are employed and those who are unemployed in order to give possibilities for the unemployed and for young people getting education and possibilities. That's what we did in Norway. It took us two years. Uh, but in 1993, the... Uh, uh, the development in the economy turned, and uh, unemployment came down, interest rates came down, and uh, the fiscal balance improved. Well, it, it's, it's a very important issue that uh, I think one is discussing now in many countries, how to uh, come up with a uh, new scheme for uh, banks and financial institutions when you put the discussion, the, the, uh, the expression, too big and too important to fail. But uh, once again, if you look at the, the way we managed the uh, banking crisis in Norway in the early 90s, we played by, I will use the expression, by the capitalist rules, that uh, it was the private equity that had to suffer before you injected new common equity uh, through the government from the common funds of the people of Norway. So I think uh, that is one way that uh, proved to be, in, in my view, a very reasonable and sane approach. Then again, I would close by saying that uh, to hit the right balance between uh, austerity, uh, austerity measures and uh, the need to, to uh, protect the, the interests of the unemployed and to the, of the young people, it's, 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 it's the difficult one. 
But uh, I was just telling you about the experience from Norway in 1991, of course, at a much smaller degree than many countries in Europe are facing today. But uh, in my view, it's, it's no quick solutions. And it's only hard work. And, uh, and uh, have a clear, clear view of, in, of, of the direction in which you are heading in order to get out of this. And, and I'm certain that Europe will cope. And uh, we have proved that by uh, uh, previous occasions in history. And I think we are going to prove it again. So in my view, uh, it's going to be difficult. But uh, we have no other choice, in my view. Thank you. We can take one or one two last, last question. question. Please. Lady in the front. Yeah. Could you wait for the roving mic? Hello. My name is Eileen Smith. I'm a resident of London. I'm not working, as probably apparent. Um, but what I want to know is the secret of Norway in maintaining a solid moral foundation. I'm afraid that in England today, I don't see this solid moral foundation where many of our politicians are investing in all sorts of um, companies, such as the healthcare companies, and in the meantime, destroying our health service. That is simply an example of what is happening. So how does Norway keep that secret? Now you're in trouble and how not to compete on the domestic. There's one more question that we take here. Okay. In the fourth row, there. Gentleman in the sweater. Yes. Yes, I, I'm Mr. Bonva. Can you comment on the title? Because it's not clear for me. Equality, Grow, and Sustainability. Where do you see the, this not strange, impossible combination? I mean, the European Union has got a strategy. First, you know, this Lisbon strategy, where there's a combination of uh, job creation, let's say, innovation. The question is, how do you integrate this, all these three in order to can develop this long-term strategy? This was very good for, North, for your country. Let's think at European level. We have uh, so many cultures, so many different economics, so many. Do you don't think they should have some kind of uh, different strategies at regional level? So you should have uh, a Mediterranean strategy, a uh, northern strategy, as well as, let's say, eastern strategy coordinated by Europe, not mixture, all of them. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think it's difficult to, uh, to visualize a uh, special overall strategy. What I could share with you and my colleagues is uh, the experiences of Norway. And of course, uh, Norway is a, uh, it's a big country and geographically seen, we are uh, 324,000 square kilometers. England are 244,000, so we are a big country geographically seen, but we are 5 million people. But uh, I would say that uh, uh, even for the last uh, 70, 80 years since the, since the recessions of the uh, early 30s, there has been, a, uh, as, I, as I told you, a very golden rule about Norwegian policies and that's crossing all party lines, really, uh, with some nuances, of course, in the political discussion, and that is uh, the value of labor. I, I express that once again because it's so important. And like uh, one of my colleagues said and, uh, uh, from the 70s, who, and he was also prime minister of Norway uh, during some of the turbulent years in the 70s, 
and he made a, an expression in Norway, and, and he said, well, Norway is going to be an island of, of employment in a European sea of unemployment. And, and I think this is a very important lesson, because uh, those politicians in Norway who came, the, the, the previous generation of politics, politicians in Norway, some of them have experienced the costs of unemployment uh, really on their own skin. So to, to, to have this very deep and very important uh, experience, it's, 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 it's so important never to lose sight of the value of human labor. Then, of course, there's a lot of possibilities. We have been discussing in Norway, what are you going to do after the oil age, when the oil is gone? Well, as I, as I told you, first of all, we, we are going to have a huge uh, deposit invested abroad. But the main thing, as I also told you in my speech, is that uh, the, the industry, uh, the oil industry of Norway, could be utilized for a lot of other purposes. For instance, uh, being in the forefront in the innovation of renewables, uh, or climate change, and, and, and a new, uh, what to say, green technology. Uh, in, in, uh, we have been discussing, for instance, in the framework of the OECD, and there's going to be a ministerial meeting next week in Paris, where, where, what, where we call a green job strategy is one of the main strategies. So it's, it's a lot of possibilities. And it's amazing to see in many countries that the uh, erosion of, of industries are in some countries uh, almost 10% a year. So you have to make innovations for an, a, a fresh 10% uh, businesses. So the possibilities are there. And I'm, I'm certain that if we meet again in 20 years' time, many of the possibilities for the young people in this audience today, we do not know today what, what, what is going to, to happen there. So I would say that uh, we must never be overwhelmed by the challenges and the difficulties, because if we are being overwhelmed, then you lose sight of the perspective. So, and then, to, just to close, there is, no, there is no real secret of Norway other than, uh, once again, telling you that uh, uh, a fair social distribution and work is really the core of the issue. And it's, it's well, it's, it's easy for me to say it, but uh, if you look at the Norwegian experience since the uh, early 30s, that, that's really been the, the golden rule and the, and the long, long lines of Norwegian economic policy. Uh, in Norway, we use an expression to build a society and you build a society in, in different ways. And when we discovered oil in 1969, and I was making reference to the first white paper to the parliament in 1974, not only did we say that this money belonged to the Norwegian people, but we also said that this money should be spent to create a society of higher quality. So that's another very important guideline. So, but it's, I, I can only speak to you about what we have been doing in Norway every other country must find their own ways, but uh, I'm certain that there are some experiences that we could share, and we could certainly share the experience and the knowledge of solutions that are working. In, in a small country population, uh, seen, uh, in a small country like Norway, but uh, I'm certain that there will also be transferable experiences to other countries with a bigger population than Norway, but uh, each country must sort out its own way. So what I can do is, once again, to share my experiences with you and other audiences. So once again, thank you very much. Thank you very much for coming.
I think I have uh, learned a lot, especially that Bob Dylan is actually a fiscal analyst, helps the finance <laughs> minister get through these things and so on. It was very nice to hear that, you know, you are aware of that you have it a bit easier than some other European countries, but there is still, I agree with you, something to learn from banking crisis and whatever you have been through. I thank you all for your interest and for very interesting questions that you have answered one by one. I was impressed. Um, could you please stay seated until the minister has left? And thank you above all for your talk and sharing your experience with us. Thank you very much. Thank you.